After shooting their way out of the burning McSween house and to the river, Billy Bonnie and his bunch linked up with George Coe. And believe it or not, they all crept back into town, making their way to the Ellis store. Old Ike Ellis told them they was crazier in hell and frantically warned them to get gone, prompting Coe to remark, Keep your shirt on. We've gotten out of worse than this. Securing food from Ellis, they slipped away into the night once again, hiding out in the hills before they slowly headed to Frank Coe's ranch. Along the way, they stopped and asked a farmer for coffee. When the man balked, claiming that Sheriff Pepin would kill him if it was found out that he provided any sort of aid to the regulators, he was told under no uncertain terms that he'd meet his maker a whole hell of a lot sooner if said coffee wasn't produced, and pronto. Needless to say, the boys continued on their journey with bellies full of hot joe. By the way, this is part four in the series on Billy the Kid. Link in the show notes for the previous installments, including the kids' early years and the Lincoln County War. On today's episode, we'll be delving into the war's aftermath and Billy the Kid's transition from regulator to full-blown outlaw. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Although the Dolan faction technically won the war, it was not a pretty victory. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to share the words of noted historian Robert Utley, who I believe sums it up all nicely. Speaking of the Battle of Lincoln, Mr. Utley writes, quote, The escape from McSween's blazing home gave Billy Bonney a modest notoriety in New Mexico. Territorial papers named him as one of the defenders of the McSween house and at first reported him among the dead. So far, however, neither the public nor the press perceived him in any larger dimensions than warranted by strict fact. He was simply one of about a dozen faceless regulators who got their names in the papers whenever they fought a skirmish or shot one of the opposition. He had done nothing to give him any more prominence in the public eye than the men with whom he rode and fought. Even the daring breakout, which he probably engineered, was successfully shared with three other men. However highly regarded by his comrades, Billy had yet to gain a public reputation. Yet the five-day battle gave Billy a baptism of fire far more searing than any in his earlier experience. Trapped in a predicament that seemed hopelessly fatal, he had kept his head, risen in a position of leadership, plotted an escape, and for himself and three others at least, carried it out with all the boldness and bravery for which he had come to be admired by his fellow regulators. End quote. I think that's a great analysis, and I love how Utley highlights the fact that Billy was still relatively unknown. Modest notoriety, he said. Just one of a dozen. A popular narrative I often read makes the argument that the Santa Fe Ring, feeling pressured by the mounting violence and the federal investigations into their corruption, needed a target, a fall guy, someone who they could cast all the blame on. I don't doubt that Billy, throughout his short life, was blamed for crimes he did not commit. And I don't doubt that he was made out to be far worse than he was. Still, though, following the Battle of Lincoln, he was, relatively speaking, a nobody. Even at this junction, the kid could have simply left New Mexico and started over fresh somewhere else. The army would not pursue him, and neither would the New Mexican authorities. More of my thinking here in a bit, but for now, Billy and the others scrambled to procure some fresh mounts, most of which were taken or air quotes borrowed. They also began threatening men they considered loyal to the Dolan faction. So much for being an innocent fall guy, right? The threats were taken seriously enough that Colonel Dudley had to send out troops to once again protect the civilian targets. Hell, even Dudley himself was threatened. 
And then there was the Indian agent at the Mescalero Reservation, Frederick Godfroy. You may remember him from the previous episode as being the guy who also ran that little inn there at Blazer's Mill. Well, what I didn't mention previously is that there were past difficulties between Godfroy and McSween, and even between Godfroy and Chisholm going all the way back to the Pecos War. Following McSween's death, Godfroy requested that Dudley provide him with an army escort, saying that Billy Bonnie specifically intended to kill him. And his worst fears nearly came true on August 5th, 1878. According to Frank Coe, he and the boys were in the area just to pay their respects at the grave of Dick Brewer. Truth is, they were there to steal horses from the Mescaleros. You had Billy, of course, Doc Scurlock still as the leader, John Middleton, Henry Brown, French, Bowdry, young Salazar still nursing his wounds, Fernando Herrera, and a few others, a significant amount of whom were the Hispanic faction of the Regulators. As the Desperados approached the agency, they split up into two groups. The Gringos veered off the trail and stopped at a spring to water themselves and their mounts as the Baqueros kept on a-riding. And right about the time that Billy was hopping out of the saddle to quench his thirst, gunfire erupted nearby. I guess them bandits had run smack dab into some Apache who didn't feel like having their horses stolen that day. Agent Godfroy, along with a handful of soldiers and a clerk named Morris Bernstein, came to investigate. In the melee that followed, Mr. Bernstein was shot dead, allegedly from a bullet fired by regulator Atanasio Martinez. New Mexico in the 1870s was just not the place to be for tenderfoots named Morris. Billy and the others scrambled for their horses, the kid actually hopped on the back of George Coe as his pony panicked and ran off, and they made a quick getaway, getting fired on both by the Apache and soldiers. According to Coe, we were having to ride on the side of our horses, but they never touched a hair on us. Of course, they did slow down long enough at the agency corral to make off with a few Indian ponies on their way out, Billy riding bareback all the way back to Frank's ranch. And despite him not being the leader of the rustlers, Despite being several hundred yards away and even not firing around at the man, Billy Bonnie would be fingered as Bernstein's killer. This is often pointed to as the Santa Fe ring propping the kid up to take the fall. But let's be fair. Billy and them others had gone to that agency to steal horses under the threat of violence. Whoever killed Bernstein, they did so in the course of an armed dam robbery. A robbery that the kid went right along with. I know it's very easy to romanticize all these guys, and I'll be honest. Out of all the people I cover here on the Wild West extravaganza, Billy the Kid is easily among the most likable, and a whole lot less hypocritical than many of your well-regarded lawmen of the air. But the Kid were no innocent choir boy. I think that's important to keep in mind as we continue with this series. There was a lot that went wrong in Billy's life that helped steer him towards crime, toss in the Lincoln County War and one might make the assumption that he was doomed. However, the Battle of Lincoln took place in mid-July 1878. The kid would go on to live another three years. And in those three years, despite most of his friends settling down and or leaving the territory altogether, despite his pals begging him to do the same, Billy just kept on stealing, kept on riding that hoot owl trail. And yeah, he kept on killing. Just some to ponder. About two weeks following Bernstein's death, the regulators would show up at John Chisholm's headquarters about 30 miles south of Fort Sumner. Once again, John is gone, but his brothers Jim and Peitzer were there, getting ready to move a large herd of cattle. And of course, pretty little Sally Chisholm. She recorded in her diary that one William Bonnie gifted her an Indian tobacco sack on the 13th of August and two candy hearts on the 22nd. 
I personally would have gone with Jolly Ranchers, but nobody asked my opinion. Regulators followed the Chisholm herd on up to Fort Sumner, where they had themselves a big party, before pressing further north to Anton Chico. While there, they had a confrontation with a large posse from nearby Las Vegas. A Sheriff Romero and his eight deputies came calling, and Billy stepped up and addressed the lawman, essentially saying, It's us you're looking for. We're right here, and you'll never find us all lined up like this again. You want to do something about it, we might as well settle it now. The sheriff balked, and Billy then offered he and his men around at the bar, which they agreed to, after which the lawmen all saddled up and headed back to Las Vegas empty-handed. It was also there in Anton Chico that, according to Frank Coe, the regulators had themselves a quote-unquote war powwow. For many of the men, it was decision time. Frank and his cousin George, for example, were done fighting. They said it was over and that they were headed for Colorado. The kid wouldn't budge, though, saying that it most certainly was not over as far as he was concerned and that he still planned on exacting revenge. Doc Skurlock and Charlie Bowdry were also done, and they set up shop at Fort Sumner. Doc moved his family there. I think by this point he already had a couple of young kids, and this is where Charlie got married. Both of them would take up work for Pete Maxwell and rancher Thomas Yerby. Now, I recently wrote a little something on Doc's latter years for my newsletter subscribers. Give it a read if you get a chance. Link in the show notes. That newsletter, by the way, is 100% free. All you got to do is sign up and it's delivered straight into your inbox. Doc will show up more in this series. We're not quite to the part where he moves to Texas yet. But by the very early fall of 1878, he was mostly done riding with the regulators. The regulators who remained acknowledged Billy as their leader. Now, you may remember the ambush killing of Frank McNabb that took place on the ranch of Charles Fritz, just south of Lincoln. I guess Billy Bonney held old Charles partially responsible as he and the remaining regulators raided the Fritz spread in early September, making off with about 15 head of horses. Later that month, Billy, along with Tom O'Folliard, Henry Newton Brown, Fred Wade, and John Middleton, headed for the Lone Star State, hoping to learn a little something about marksmanship. The kid is credited with saying, quote, Me and the boys could have whipped Dolan and Jesse Evans in no time flat if only we knew how to shoot our firearms accurately. As it were, we were from New Mexico, so all we could do was pepper adobe with bullets and kill a few innocent horses. It was my hopes that some of the men in Texas would teach us a thing or two when it comes to the proper use of firearms and maybe even how to please a woman sexually. End of quote. And no, I did just make all that up. Truth is, Billy had just stolen another small herd of horses from John Chisholm and was hoping to offload them over in the Texas panhandle. And you better believe he was successful in doing so. The ranchers around the big city of Tuscosa were always in need of fresh mounts, and they weren't all that picky on whether or not the horses were acquired honestly. The regulators would end up hanging around Tuscosa for a bit, and the kids struck up a friendship with a young doctor by the name of Henry Hoyt. Neither one of them drank, so they made a good pair. Hoyt, whose account should be taken with a grain of salt, just saying, shared one very interesting little insight into the regulators. I guess one night they was all attending a dance put on by Pedro Romero, who insisted that no guns were allowed in his establishment. Okay, fine. The regulators removed all their hardware, at least their visible hardware, before entering. After all, they were eager to dance with the senoritas. Well, late that evening, Billy and Dr. Hoyt were just hanging out, and Hoyt ends up challenging Billy to a foot race. Because why not? They take off running, and Billy gets a little too carried away, trips and falls, and goes spilling rot into Pedro's dance hall. The regulators, assuming something was amiss, immediately stop boot-scooting boogieing, and in the blink of an eye, 
surrounded the fallen kid, pistols drawn, hammers back. Of course, they all got really embarrassed when they found out that Billy had just fallen and tripped, but nonetheless, they were all barred from attending any more of Mr. Romero's dances. A real quick more on Tuscosa in a moment, but this episode of the Wild West Extravaganza is brought to you by... All right, welcome back. There's a lot of stories of Billy and Tuscosa, most of them unprovable. Apparently, he and Bat Masterson got into a shooting competition with Temple Houston, the son of former Texas president Sam Houston, and the story goes that both Billy and Bat lost to Temple's prowess. Unfortunately, this little anecdote is almost certainly not true. There's no record of Masterson and the kid ever meeting. In all actuality, Bat was sheriff of Ford County, Kansas during this period, so not sure what he would have been doing just hanging out in Texas. Furthermore, Temple Houston did not set foot in Tuscosa until 1882, a year after, uh, well, you know. Just another tall tale, this one apparently got its start in 1941 by an over-imaginative newspaperman out of Amarillo. Once it came time to return to New Mexico, John Middleton, Henry Brown, and Fred Waite decided they'd follow Bowdry and Doc's lead and bow out, leaving just Billy Bonney and the ever-faithful Tom O'Folliard. The pair would spend a few weeks around Fort Sumner doing the usual dancing and gambling, but it weren't long before Billy was drawn back to the Lincoln area. He just couldn't stay away. To his credit, however, he did finally start thinking about maybe going straight, or as straight as a wayward soul like his was capable of. He was tired of fighting, tired of running, and willing to stand trial if it meant moving on with his life. And there were changes afoot. Remember that federal investigator that was sent to Lincoln? Well, he filed a very damning report that saw President Hayes replace Governor Axtell with the former Army General Lew Wallace. And one of the first things that Wallace did was declare a proclamation of insurrection, allowing Colonel Dudley and his Buffalo soldiers to once more work with civilian authorities, i.e. participate in helping the local posses like they did before the Posse Comitatus Act. Wallace also issued a blanket pardon for all involved in the Lincoln County War except those currently under indictment like the kid. Pepin was no longer sheriff. He had been defeated in the past November's election by George Kimball. And what's more, Susan McSween was back. She and her lawyer, an anxious feller named Houston Chapman, meant to see to it that Colonel Dudley paid for his part in her late husband's death. As for Dudley, he would soon be relieved to command as well, his replacement a more impartial officer by the name of Henry Carroll. Considering all these changes and thinking it was now or never, Billy reached out and offered an olive branch of sorts. He sent word to Dolan asking if he were for war or for peace, and Dolan replied back that maybe they should have a parlay. They met on the night of February 18, 1878, the one-year anniversary of Tunstall's death, right there in Lincoln. On one side of the street, you had Jimmy Dolan along with Jesse Evans, Billy Matthews, and a tough Lincoln County newcomer by the name of Billy Campbell. On the other side of the street, you had the kid, backed by Tom O'Follier, Joe Bowers, Genio Salazar, and possibly Doc Skurlock. And right off the bat, Jesse Evans was wanting to fight. He proclaimed that you couldn't make a deal with the kid, and it would just be better off to go ahead and kill him. Billy kept his cool, though, and maintained that he came to make peace. Finally, the two groups stepped out into the open, into the street, shaking hands. They came to an agreement. Not only would the killing stop, but they swore not to testify against each other in court. And anybody that broke this arrangement would be executed on sight. Another round of handshaking, and they all decided to celebrate with a night of drunken festivities. Okay, fine, but you know how that goes. 
The party roamed from one saloon to another, drinking as they went, all except for Billy, of course, as usual, he refrained. And later that night, Dolan and the others came upon Susan McSween's lawyer, Houston Chapman. He was walking on the boardwalk as Jesse Evans and Billy Campbell began shoving him around and trying to make him dance. Chapman refused, so Campbell pulled out a pistol and shoved it into Houston's chest. More arguing. A drunken J.J. Dolan then shucked a revolver of his own and randomly fired it off into the street. I guess the report startled Billy Campbell because he instinctively pulled the trigger, shooting the attorney in the chest at point-blank range. The powder flash set in Chapman's shirt afire as he fell back dead. And they just walked away and kept on partying. A little while later, over drinks and oysters, Dolan came up with the idea to have somebody plant a revolver on Chapman's body, make it look like it was self-defense. A sober, and at this point, I'm sure very ready to leave, Billy Bonney agreed to do the deed, taking Campbell's pistol. Instead of placing it on Chapman's body, the kid just quietly mounted his pony and rode out of town. What peace that had been created just a few hours earlier was destined to fail, and I'm pretty sure Billy regretted shaking hands with the devil even before Chapman was murdered. Reckon he at least tried, though. And as it would turn out, the kid would be the first to break the arrangement. First, however, them responsible for Chapman's murder were soon rounded up. Evans, Campbell, Matthews, and eventually Dolan. All of them locked up there at Fort Stanton. And they weren't the only ones. By the end of March 1879, the fort was fairly crowded with civilian prisoners. Black Knights, as the Governor Wallace called them, in his attempt to clean up the territory. Billy decided to strike while the iron was hot and hopefully wiggle out of some trouble himself. Likely thinking it was now or never, the kid wrote to the governor personally and offered to break the oath he took with Dolan. The letter read in part, I was present when Mr. Chapman was murdered and I know who did it. If it was arranged that I could appear in court, I could give the desired information. But I have indictments against me for things that happened in the late Lincoln County War and am afraid to give up because my enemies would kill me. If it is in your power to annul those indictments, I hope you will do so, so as to give me a chance to explain. I have no wish to fight any more. Indeed, I have not raised an arm since your proclamation. As to my character, I refer you to the citizens, for the majority of them are my friends and have been helping me all they could. I am called Kid Antrim, but Antrim is my stepfather's name. Signed, William H. Bonney. And the governor, hoping to get a handle on all the violence and corruption, agreed. He sent word to Billy to meet him in secret in Lincoln about a week later in the dead of the night. And at the predetermined time, the kid arrived. Winchester in one hand and revolver in the other, not taking any chances. Once he figured things were safe, he sat down with the governor and they hashed out the details. If Billy would testify before a grand jury and a trial, helping to convict Chapman's killers and maybe a few other villains from the Lincoln County War, the governor would let the kid go scot-free, pardon in pocket, for all of his misdeeds. Billy made sure that Wallace included his pal O'Falliard in the deal and then said he'd give his answer in a few days, slipping out into the dark the same way he came in. And yeah, of course Billy agreed. Like I said, he was ready to get on with his life, without fear of a hangman's noose. The plan was that the governor would stage a fake arrest so it didn't look like Bonnie came in willingly. The kid would then be put into protective custody until trial. Billy's main concern here was being able to trust the men who arrested him telling Wallace to be sure it was people he could depend on, saying, quote, I am not afraid to die fighting like a man, but I would not like to be killed like a dog unarmed. Now, part of the reason he was so concerned was Jesse Evans. The two guys hated each other, and even though Jesse was recently arrested and stuck at Fort Stanton, he escaped. He was out there on the loose somewhere, 
and if he knew that Billy was turning on him and Dolan, he'd do anything within his power to get to the kid. Nevertheless, on Friday, March 21st, 1879, Sheriff Kimball, along with a posse, rode on down to San Patricio and took both the kid and O'Folliard into custody. Unlike the others who were locked up at the fort, Billy and Tom were brought to Lincoln and placed over in Juan Patron's house, right next to where the governor himself was staying. Hell, Wallace even wrote about all the people coming by singing and serenading the kid through the window, about how the senoritas would call out as they passed by. And of course, Billy testified before the grand jury just a few weeks later, saying that it was Dolan and Campbell with a little help from Jesse Evans who killed Houston Chapman. O'Folliard backed up these claims under oath as well, and both Dolan and Billy Campbell were indicted for murder with Evans as accessory. And the grand jury wasn't just focused on Dolan. All around 200 indictments were handed out to 50 men for everything from Bernard McSween's house to the murder of Frank McNabb. Even Colonel Dudley and the former Sheriff Pepin were indicted. The grand jury members were all McSween sympathizers, hence nobody on the McSween side of the Lincoln County War receiving indictments. None of it amounted to a hill of beans, though. Many of those indicted were just released based on Wallace's promise of a blanket amnesty, while others simply just disappeared. Dolan and Colonel Dudley, even Sheriff Pepin, all ended up with trial dates, but they were either acquitted or had the charges dropped altogether. Billy was actually present for Dudley's hearing before the military board of inquiry, and he and Susan McSween both testified, but the colonel's attorney did a hell of a job discounting said testimony. Like I said, Colonel Dudley was exonerated, and Billy, along with Doc Skurlock, who was still in New Mexico and still in hot water over the killing of Buckshot Roberts, were both ordered to be taken to Mesilla to stand trial. So much for Governor Wallace's promise of a pardon, right? Remember, though, Billy wasn't locked up in Fort Stanton. He and Doc and Tom were just roaming the streets of Lincoln at will. They stuck around for a little bit waiting for that pardon that never came, and finally, on the 17th of June, 1879, they just mounted up and rode on out of town as Sheriff Kimball turned a blind eye. Doc returned back to Fort Sumner, and other than helping the kids steal about 100 head of John Chisholm's cattle, he was done. As I mentioned earlier, that fall, he would move his family to Texas and spend the rest of his life trying to forget all these wild years he spent with the kid. As for Billy Bonnie, he went to Las Vegas. Las Vegas, New Mexico, that is. Billy arrived around the same time the so-called Dodge City Gang partially controlled Vegas. Not to be confused with the Dodge City Peace Commission, the Dodge City Gang was led by former lawman J.J. Webb as the town marshal and Hoodoo Brown as the Justice of the Peace, along with a gang of crooks consisting of Dave Rudaball and mysterious Dave Mather, to name a few. There was gambling aplenty, and Billy didn't have to worry none about being put in chains, at least not at this point. And it was there in Las Vegas that possibly one of the coolest meetings ever in the course of history occurred. Per Dr. Hoyt, remember him, that young physician from Tuscosa? Well, by this time, he had migrated to Vegas. According to Hoyt, he was surprised to walk into a hotel one evening and spy his old buddy, Billy Bonney. The kid was sitting there with an older gentleman, whom he introduced as his friend, Mr. Howard. Later on, Billy confided in Dr. Hoyt that Mr. Howard was really the notorious Jesse James traveling under his pseudonym. So did this really happen? Honestly, I'm not sure. Here's the deal. The source here is Dr. Hoyt from his book, Frontier Doctor, which was published in 1929. Much like Pat Garrett's The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, some of what Hoyt wrote about can be proven as false and other stuff can be verified as absolutely occurring. Hoyt definitely knew the kid and just based on the doctor's other credible claims, 
we can't just wholesale dismiss everything the man said. We know that in 1879, when the meeting between James and the kid allegedly occurred, Jesse was living in Tennessee under the name Howard. Of course, by 1929, when Hoyt wrote the book, this was common knowledge. It's also known that Jesse did travel extensively while living in Tennessee. While there's no hard proof that he visited New Mexico, it would have certainly been possible, especially considering that Las Vegas was accessible by rail. The most compelling evidence, however, comes from sources other than Hoyt. A paper out of Las Vegas printed in their December 6, 1879 edition, quote, Jesse James was a guest at Las Vegas Hot Springs July 26 to the 29th. Of course, this is not generally known, end quote. Furthermore, Miguel Otero, future governor of New Mexico, also claimed to have seen Jesse and Billy together there in Las Vegas. And if that's not enough, the owner of the hotel where they were eating, according to at least one account, was originally from Clay County, Missouri, and a childhood friend of James. So yeah, I am still very skeptical that Billy the Kid and Jesse James ever met. It just sounds too Hollywood. But I can't prove that this never happened. So in this case, myth not busted. You're welcome. Now the kid would not stay in Las Vegas forever. He would soon return to Lincoln, and it appears he was spoiling for a fight. Not sure if the pressure was getting to him, but Billy did appear to be on the prowl. He had heard that his good buddy Frank Coe was back in town, having come to retrieve a hay-cutting machine, and sure enough, Billy found Frank at Susan McSween's place, playing the fiddle as a sergeant from nearby Fort Stanton danced around the parlor. Billy stepped inside, but instead of greeting Coe, he immediately began grilling the soldier, asking him what the hell he was doing there. The sergeant sheepishly replied, I guess you should know, to which the kid countered with a, well, why don't you do something? A moment of awkward silence followed with the sergeant explaining, we're sent out, but we don't have to do anything. Okay, cool. But the kid wouldn't let it go. Once Frank started playing the fiddle, likely to defuse the situation, the kid began dancing as the sergeant just sat there, wondering what the hell he had gotten himself into. Picture the scene. Billy the Kid holding his rifle, doing a jig all over the soldier's feet. The soldier would draw his boots in, but Bonnie would just dance closer and closer, stepping all over his toes. Finally, Frank, sensing that violence was imminent, stopped fiddling long enough for the soldier to find an excuse to leave. Following this incident, Billy may or may not have nearly gotten arrested by Sheriff Kimball. There are hints that he was practically daring the lawman to make a move, and there's at least one source that has the kid escaping out of a chimney, the same way he did back in Silver City, in order to get away. I was not able to determine if this was true, and it does sort of seem to directly contradict all the other information about the kid and Sheriff Kimball's somewhat friendly relationship. Hey, just one more quick ad break, and then we'll get back to the story. All right, welcome back. Just a reminder that you can listen to the Wild West Extravaganza ad-free on Patreon. Link in the show notes. Despite this brief trip to Lincoln, the kid was sticking pretty close to Fort Sumner. Not only was there practically no law enforcement presence there, but Billy had lots of friends at the old fort. Guys like Charlie Bowdry, O'Folliard, a relative newcomer named Billy Wilson, and Tom Pickett, a sometimes outlaw, sometimes lawman, and associate of the Dodge City Gang out of Vegas. And of course, there was the other Vegas alumni, Dave Rudabaugh, sometimes referred to as Dirty Dave, just like Billy's old regulator pal. If you haven't heard it already, check out the episode I did on Rudabaugh. If you'd like to learn more, link in the show notes. But don't worry, we will be discussing Dave some more later on. And finally, yet another reason why Billy loved hanging around Fort Sumner, possibly his top reason, were the ever-present ladies. 
Billy Bonnie loved the Hispanic women. I got the same weakness myself. And apparently they loved him right back. The list of known paramours goes on and on. Just there at Fort Sumner alone, you had Pat Garrett's sister-in-law, Celsa Gutierrez, another gal named Nasaria Yerby, and yet another named Abrana Garcia, whom some think bore the kid two children. Hell, there's even rumors of the kid getting with Charlie Bowdry's wife, Manuela. And then, of course, you had Paulita Maxwell, the sister of Pete Maxwell, and the daughter of the late Lucian Maxwell. Paulita is often acknowledged as being the kid's main squeeze, and even the reason he didn't just slide out of the territory altogether. Worth noting that Paulita lived a long time, all the way till 1929. She was interviewed before her death concerning her relationship with the kid, and she always steadfastly denied any sort of romantic involvement. And I get it. Paulita was married shortly after the kid's death and remained joined in holy matrimony to the same man for the rest of her life. And by the time she was interviewed in the 1920s, she was a grandmother. She, justifiably, was not too keen about letting her kids and grandkids know how Mamaw used to be the lover of a notorious criminal. Now, just between you, me, and the wall, Paulita and Billy were definitely an item. An opinion that I share with every single other person who studied the life of Billy the Kid. And despite Paulita not divulging any first-hand knowledge, she did leave us with a pretty good idea of Billy's other interests. When interviewed, Paulita said that the kid, quote, fascinated many women. Like a sailor, he had a sweetheart in every port of call. In every placita in the Pecos, some little senorita was proud to be known as his quierda, lover, end of quote. And you know, maybe Paulita harbored a little bit of jealousy. I'm sure she heard rumors of Billy's other women, even right there at Fort Sumner, not to mention down in San Patricio or even up there in Vegas. Many a good woman has refused to settle for a man that they know ain't ready to stay put. It's very likely that Paulita knew Billy for a rake and rambler, and as fun as the kid was come dancing time, fun ain't all it takes to make a marriage work. Another draw to Fort Sumner was easy access to quote-unquote free cattle, both in New Mexico and Texas. The kid even paid a visit to John Chisholm and told the rancher that he was owed back pay for his services during the Lincoln County War. Chisholm rebuked the kid, refusing to pay a damn red cent, so of course, Billy simply took the pay he felt he was owed in Chisholm cattle. Now, obviously, not everybody there at Fort Sumner was a friend. Enter in an old boy named Joseph Grant, who had taken to calling himself Texas Red. No idea if he was a fan of Marty Stewart. January 10th, 1880, found the kid in Bob Hargrove's saloon there at Fort Sumner buying a few rounds for the local cowpokes, when in comes Texas Red drunk off his ass and spouting off at the mouth. Look, as you know, I'm from Texas, just like Grant. And as you also know, I talk a lot of trash about people from other states, Oklahoma especially, which let's be honest, they deserve it. And in this series, New Mexico is getting their due. That said, as someone born and raised in the Lone Star State, I am very much aware that my fellow Texans do have the bad reputation of being loudmouth blowhards. So listen up. If you're from Texas, consider this a public service announcement from one of your own. Is Texas the greatest state in the Union? Yes, of course. Are we, by birthright alone, superior to people from other states? Also a yes. Is the phrase, everything is bigger in Texas, a direct reference to the size of our penises? Yes, yes, and yes. But listen, we don't need to be so vocal about it. You can be the best without bragging. And besides, there's always the chance you'll come off looking like Texas Red, and nobody wants that. Dollars to donuts, as soon as this dude stepped into Hargrove's saloon, he let everybody know that he was from Texas. 
but I digress. As I was saying, Texas Red, a.k.a. Joe Grant, was a real asshole and drunk, which is never a good combination. And I think that was Joseph Grant's real undoing on the night of January 10th. We all know that Billy didn't care for bullies, and I don't know, maybe Grant reminded the kid of Wendy Cahill. Nevertheless, Grant was determined to pick a fight. He removed one cowboy's fancy pearl-handled pistol and placed it in his own holster. The cowpoke, not one to rile Grant further, just ignored the slight. Not Billy Bonney, though. That was just his game. Kid stepped up and pulled that fancy pistol out of Rand's holster as he pretended to admire it. Chatting up Grant and noticing that there were only three bullets in the chambers, Billy just sort of casually made sure the cylinder stopped so that the hammer would strike an empty chamber and handed it on back. Skip ahead a little while later and the two began quarreling. Keep in mind that Texas Red had already been bragging about how he was going to kill someone that very night. As he and the kid began arguing, Red called him a liar. So Billy turned just to walk away. Sure enough, as soon as his back was turned, Billy heard the telltale click of that hammer hitting an empty chamber. In the blink of an eye, the kid spun, and that cold thunderer of his barked three times as he perforated the face of Texas Red. Eyewitnesses claimed that the pattern was so tight you could cover all three holes with a half dollar. When later asked, Billy said it was a game of two and I got there first. Now, other than Fort Sumner, the kid also began spending more and more time in the town of White Oaks, about 150 miles to the southwest. Instead of trailing stolen horses to the Texas Panhandle, Bonnie was now stealing Texas cattle and herding them to a feller in White Oaks named Pat Coughlin, yet another crooked Irishman who had a beef contract with Fort Stanton. I'm kind of starting to wonder if the U.S. Army ever bought one single cow in New Mexico that wasn't stolen. More about White Oaks very shortly, but one thing to keep in mind is that its populace, unlike many of the kids' other haunts, was predominantly white. The Hispanic population that Billy heavily relied on just did not really exist there. As such, he would not be as protected or as welcome in White Oaks as he was in other places. This may seem trivial, but as it turns out, it would have dire consequences. Now, Billy didn't really have a gang, at least not one that was very organized. That bunch that he hung out with at Fort Sumner, O'Falliard, Rudabaugh, Wilson, and Pickett, they were just a few of the many criminals who stuck around the Bosque Redondo for the same exact reasons that Billy did. That said, the kid was emerging as a leader among this criminal element. Not necessarily a gang, but the criminals in general. Especially after killing Joe Grant, which only served to increase his notoriety. This newfound status, or infamy, would only bring even more heat onto Billy and his associates. For instance, all them cattlemen over in Texas were getting plumb fed up with having their cows stolen. They formed the Panhandle Stock Association and sent men over to Fort Sumner to investigate, an investigation that pegged Billy as being the chief rustler of Texas cattle. Whether or not this was true, he was certainly one of the most popular guys around and thus singled out as the number one target. Speaking of cattlemen, John Chisholm was also tired of Billy's shit. He and another prominent citizen, Joseph Leah, began shopping around for somebody to replace George Kimball as Lincoln County Sheriff. And their man turned out to be Patrick Floyd Garrett. About 10 years older than the kid, the Alabama-born and Louisiana-reared Garrett headed west at a young age working at various times as a farmer and cowboy before he eventually took to hunting buffalo on the southern plains. It was in such a capacity that Garrett killed his first man, a fellow hide hunter named Joe Briscoe. The circumstances are considered to be very shady, but according to Pat, the two began quarreling, and Briscoe came at him with an axe, leaving Garrett no option but to shoot him. Pat turned himself into authorities there at Fort Griffin, but no charges were filed. 
After a few close calls with the Comanche, Garrett decided to call it quits on the hide business altogether and migrate west to New Mexico, taking on a variety of jobs, one of which was tending bar in Beaver Smith's saloon over at Fort Sumner. In such a capacity, he and the kid got to know each other. Hell, one of Billy's favorite places to hang out was Beaver's saloon. Furthermore, Billy was very friendly with Garrett's in-laws, the Gutierrez family, even to the point of possibly sparking Pat's sister-in-law. As to whether or not Pat and Billy were the best of friends, as depicted in nearly every movie, there's zero evidence of this. I know I've heard the stories of how folks called Garrett Big Casino and Billy Little Casino, but the truth is there's just no indication that their relationship went any further than Beaver Saloon. Pat never rode with the kid, and he wasn't any closer to him than anybody else who hung out at Fort Sumner. In Garrett's own words, speaking of Billy, he minds his own business and I mind mine. I just simply don't want anything to do with him and he knows it. And he knows that he has nothing to fear from me as long as he does not interfere with me or my affairs. Furthermore, once John Chisholm persuaded Garrett to run for sheriff, Billy began campaigning for Pat's opponent, the incumbent Sheriff Kimball. And hell, why not? Kimball turned a half a blind eye to the kid and his activities and even set in on poker games with Bonnie when he came to Lincoln. Nevertheless, Pat Garrett would win the election in November of 1880, garnering 320 votes to Kimball's 179. Not only would Pat now be sheriff, but he also obtained a federal commission as a deputy U.S. marshal, giving him jurisdiction outside of Lincoln County in places like Fort Sumner. There was quite literally a new sheriff in town, one who not only knew the kid, but had no qualms about ending his reign of terror. And that's going to do it for episode four. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Do me a favor, huh? If you're hearing all this and you're thinking, man, I'd like to buy this Josh guy a beer. Well, you're partly in luck. I don't drink no more, but you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. Link in the show notes. Shout out to everybody who's contributed to the calls via Buy Me A Coffee and a big thank you to all the Patreon supporters. We got one more installment in the series and it's coming at you bright and early next Wednesday. Till then, remember, you're Billy the Kid too, you know. Y'all are. Dirty little Billy bastards. Adios. Keep your shirt on.